All right, folks, welcome to this episode of the Jackson Lucas webinar series. Today we had a webinar on private real estate debt uh, where we had interviewed or had a webinar with some of the top professionals in that space at some of the largest uh, providers of debt. So Lisa and I get to speak with them and learn all about what's going on in the market today and maybe some predictions for the future. And with that, please enjoy the webinar. We have a great panelist day for real estate credit debt webinar. I'll just introduce, I'm Chris Papa. I'm the founding partner of Jackson Lucas. We're a search firm. We also do compensation consulting along with organizational consulting. Uh, I'll just go around. We have, uh, sorry, my co-host here, Lisa Flicker, who's out in LA at uh, the Alice conference. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Chris. How's the conference? The conference is great. The weather's even better. As I've made very sure, yeah. clear. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll just introduce everybody. I'm in the Bay Area right now. We're headquartered in, in Midtown Manhattan. I'll introduce everybody alphabetically. We have uh, Adam Gibbons. Adam is the co-head and CIO for GID Credit. Uh, prior to that, he was uh, 11 years at CIM. I uh, started at Lehman, um, and he went to undergrad at MIT, his MBA from Stanford. Thanks for coming on, Adam. Can you want you want to give everyone a, just a little background about the your your platform, GID's credit platform? Yeah, happen to. Um, GID is a, about a sixty year old uh, company that really started as a family business uh, to invest in uh, multifamily primarily. Um, over the course of its history, uh, kind of changed from a family office to an asset manager, started managing third party capital, uh, and now is about thirty billion in assets under management. Uh, about 28 of that 30 is um, multifamily. Um, the rest of it is industrial. Um, and then I joined uh, about a year ago to build out the lending business uh, and add credit as the latest vertical. Um, so we're in the process of doing that now. Uh, we've started to quote and, and, and issue term sheets. Um, we're focused um, primarily on uh, those two asset classes as well, but um, really focused on both bridge and construction loans, uh, anything that's not stabilized, essentially. Great. And then we have Allison Bastone. Uh, Allison is an MD, uh, real estate private credit for, for Cerberus in New York. Prior, she was at uh, Lyons Bernstein, started her career at Barclays, and she went to BC and then an MBA from Wharton. Thanks for coming on, Allison. How, how are things at Cerberus? Can you tell us a little bit about your credit platform there? Thanks, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so obviously, Cerberus has been involved in the real estate industry for many, many years. Um, we have about $18 billion under management um, in the real estate vertical. Um, we came over to Cerberus in 2020, sort of right in the depths of COVID to launch the private credit platform and have been growing ever since. Um, we're currently in the process of deploying our second fund um, we have a fairly broad mandate. We can um, sit in the stretch senior or subordinate um, tranche of the capital stack. We mainly focus on opportunistic debt, um, but we can also do stabilized and we can also do construction loans. Um, we participate in all asset classes across the U.S. We also have a team that sits in Europe um, and we're targeting about mid-teens returns. So thanks again for having me. Thanks, Allison. And then we have David Proctor. David is the MD and co-head of real estate debt originations uh, in the U.S. with Aries. And previously, he was at LMF Commercial, formerly known as Rialto Mortgage Finance, as the head of debt originations. And he also was at Barclays 
and was went to BC. Did you guys go to school together or were you at Barclays together? We were at we were at Barclays together. Um a little different different ages though. I can't tell the difference. <laughs> I'm a little uh, older. Uh, I don't know if I should be offended by that, Chris. <laughs> you both look very, very young. Um, do you? Uh, yeah, can you tell us about Aries? Uh, your 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 debt platform there. Sure, uh, Aries is the alternative money manager with a significant presence in in real estate. Um, we both have you know equity and debt verticals. I'm in the debt vertical. Which has an AUM of uh, 13 billion as of uh, Q3 uh, 2023, and and within that debt vertical, we you know we do everything from stabilized core assets all the way to bridge opportunistic. We also will lend uh, construction dollars as well, um, and really you know geography wise, we lend throughout the United States and almost you know cover almost every asset type out of a you know number of offices that we have in Atlanta, LA, New York, etc. You're currently in Miami, right? That's correct. All right. And then last but not least, we have Lauren Kaufman, who is currently in Montana. Yes. Uh, on, a on a work trip there. But uh, she's the senior director at Cushman and Wakefield. Previously, it was at Deutsche Bank uh, as a VP within their commercial real estate group doing conduit loan originations. Was on the dark side as an attorney for a couple of years um, and went to NYU. And then I got her JD from Fordham. Uh, thanks for coming on, Lauren. Can you tell us about what you're seeing in? in you know? Sure. So uh, I'm at Cushman and Wakefield on their equity debt and structured finance group. Um, we are based in New York City, and uh, you know we broker deals for all asset classes in all different stages of the life cycle of of real estate. So you know whether it's land, construction, bridge, firm, um, we speak to all different lender types, including you know, Ali, David, and Adam on most of our deals, um, you know, with life co-execution, bank execution, CMBS, debt fund, um, you know, we're definitely seeing a lot more pref equity these days. Um, and historically, you know, we've had a strong focus on New York City and our clients in New York City. Um, I would say as of recent, our New York City-based clients are increasingly looking outside of New York City for deals. So, you know, we're following our cl clients all over the, the country right now. Okay, gotcha. Um, so let's start there. What, what assets and what geographies are people gravitating towards nowadays or right now? You can start, Lauren. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. I mean... I think, you know, everyone has been laser focused on the Sun Belt since, you know, basically the inception of COVID. I think what is more interesting is uh, what I'm seeing a lot more of right now, um, especially on the multifamily side, is people are shifting their focus to the Midwest. I think, you know, there's still a little bit of meat on the bones there. We haven't seen the same cap rate compression. I think people see those markets um, as, you know, markets that can in a recession if that's what's you know we're heading into um and i am starting to hear some talk of people focusing on new york city again which makes me really happy so um you know i'll let others chime in there david you want to answer that sure i mean yeah i think you know obviously reiterate uh lauren's comment about the sun belt and you know focus there and florida and you know that that's a continued trend 
you know, we are looking at, you know, we look at deals across the United States. Um, I think, uh, you know, right now, while it's, it's pretty busy, we're seeing a number of deals, you know, within, you know, the New York space, I think, um, you know, we've looked at a lot of multi, but I think Aries just announced uh, a JV with uh, RXR to start looking at doing investments within a New York City office. So that's pretty interesting churn, um, you know, kind of from the, you know, from the negativity that, you know, has been surrounding for the last couple of years. But yeah, for us, you know, based on, you know, where the fact that our clients are throughout the U.S., you know, we're constantly just seeing, you know, deals, you know, pretty much everywhere at this point. Allison or Adam, you want to jump on there too? I'm happy to um, maybe answer it a little bit differently and kind of talk about some of the places where we're not investing. Um, you know, we're, we're not redlining any markets. Uh, we try to follow our best borrowers and clients to um, where they're going and, and really kind of uh, hitch up, hitch on to um, their expertise. Um, but, you know, we like to swim with the current instead of against it. Um, and so you've certainly seen some markets uh, suffer from oversupply on the multifamily side. Um, markets that we like, frankly, like, like Austin or Nashville. Um, so we're just being a little bit more cautious in those places. Um, you know, San Francisco Bay Area is another place where it's just been challenged. Um, part of that is, you know, the, what's going on um, demographically boots on the ground. Um, and then a lot of it is, is really just the uh, investor appetite. Um, you know, people have been scared off uh, in some of these markets. And, you know, we're fortunate to have, um, you know, the opportunity to pick our spots uh, and be a little bit more choosy. So we're being, being cautious uh, in, in some of those markets that I mentioned. Or you yeah, awesome? I, I I think it's interesting. Just to, I think everybody sort of did a good summary on in terms of what which markets are interesting. I think the divided view on New York City is somewhat interesting. Um, I think we're very active in New York City, um, especially in the multifamily space. I think with the potential ending of the 421A area and sort of muted supply that results from that makes multifamily a pretty interesting proposition in New York City. Um, I think hospitality, there's also a lot of opportunity in New York City today with sort of um, the supply issue that we're facing, you know, post-COVID with some rooms being taken offline permanently and, and some rooms being converted to migrant housing. So I think we are seeing quite a bit of opportunity um, in New York City in addition to a lot of the other markets that, that the team noted. Let's start there. Let's talk about, you just mentioned hospitality leases at the Alice Conf conference in LA. Uh, what do you, what are you, Allison, what are you hearing about hospitality? And has anyone else been hearing about hospitality? Yeah, I mean, I think David has probably done the most hospitality um, of all of us on the line. I think what we're seeing is that the top line is 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 really great. I think rates are far exceeding um, what we saw in 2019, but I think on the expense side is where it's a little bit challenging to underwrite, especially with insurance costs, you know, doubling and seeing no end in sight in terms of that insurance growth, taxes. So I think it's a little bit challenging from that regard, um, but as I noted in New York City, I think we're we're relatively optimistic just based on the muted supply, and we're going to continue to look to markets that have recovered and still have sort of fly in and drive to um, demand drivers and um, rent, you know ADR growth that can sustain that expense growth. David, that, yeah, on the hospitality side, I mean we've we've found a number of opportunities where you get particularly high yield, you know, high debt yields. Uh, with with high yield thing spreads, um, and you know those those deals that we found, we 
particularly loved it. You know, a lot of them had really durable cash flows. Uh, two deal hotel deals we closed uh, last year. You know, both were adjacent to convention centers with, you know, really robust calendar schedules. Um, so you kind of you know felt good that the cash flow was sustainable for for a long period of time, and you, know, you had a pretty good view into the future there. Um, so yeah, we've been pretty bullish on, on the hospitality side. Uh, you know, and then on the resort side, you know, we we did one particular deal. You know, for a lot of the for a lot of people, it's now a three day weekend, so you get an extra night in there on, on resort style, leisure style hotels. Um, which you know has obviously made the cash flows uh, significantly better over you know since you know pre-COVID in a sense. Um, so we're finding a lot of opportunity there. And, you know, you could get paid on a loan um, with a pretty with pretty you know good downside protection. Yeah, and I would say from the brokerage side, we don't traffic a ton in hospitality. But with that being said, we're speaking to lenders all day. And particularly the debt funds have a lot of interest in uh, hospitality right now. And I think part of that is driven by, you know, where cap rates are on that asset class and that, you know, those assets can, you know, cover debt service, uh, you know, at, at some higher interest rates. Seems like the sentiment here in LA at the Alice conference is positive. So for whatever that's worth, that's, there's some good news going about. So, yeah, and from the debt fund perspective, I just say, I think some of the interest stems from the fact that we're all chasing yield right now in hospitality. You can still earn some premium returns. I think it is starting to tighten um, given the sort of optimism around the sector. But I think that if we're all chasing yield, it's one of the one of the asset classes where there's not quite as much competition. I think, you know, industrial multifamily, every debt fund is going to show up. But I think folks are a little bit more selective on the hospitality side. Yeah, speaking of what assets are feeling, I mean, kind of you already answered this a little bit, feeling more crowded. And then which ones, other niche asset classes are, is that leading you towards? Or what other, yeah. what asset classes are crowded I, and which ones aren't? I, I can take it, Chris. Um, so I'd say traditionally, a majority of our investment has been in the industrial multifamily space. Every group is showing up, as I as I mentioned. So I think we're trying to expand our mandate and get a little bit more creative and expand it to the more adjacent um, sort of cousin asset classes, if you will. So for multifamily, we'd say the adjacent asset classes are student housing, senior housing, manufactured housing. Um, for industrial, which is another asset class that we're bullish about, we've expanded that mandate to look at industrial outdoor storage, self-storage, and cold storage. So a lot of these niche asset classes that we characterize as being sort of need-based um, demand generators. So, you know, for example, self-storage, you know, the need for self-storage is driven by life events rather than growth in GDP. So we think that's, you know, relatively counter-cyclical. Um, student housing, also counter-cyclical in recessionary environments, um, student enrollment tends to grow. So that's one that we're interested in. Um, senior housing, sort of the, the aging population, baby boomer generation is, is creating a need for more senior housing. So things like that, we're just sort of being um, a little bit thesis driven and looking at these sort of more niche asset classes and trying to be a bit more creative than traditional multifamily and industrial. How are you, Adam? Yeah, the only asset class that's niche that we've really spent any time on has been student uh, for the same reasons that, that Allison mentioned. Um, it's an easy kind of adjacent uh, business to our existing multifamily business. Um, on the industrial side, you know, we're um, not super niche, but done a lot more focused on the last mile, small bay, kind of smaller product stuff. Um, so kind of stayed away from the 
million square footer big box uh, traditional you know class A stuff, um, which has more yield, has more spread, uh, less comp less competition, um, and tried to find uh, a little bit of, of an edge that way. It seems like the market is pretty competitive. Is there anything that you're any of you are doing to really like be creative in the marketplace to to win out on some of these deals? Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily creative. I think here at Cerberus, we're, we're pretty lucky. Our, our equity team focuses on strategic asset aggregation. So they have a lot of strategic platform investments. And we have one in industrial outdoor storage, for example. And we have one in cold storage. So we have a lot of data and expertise on the ground here. And we're able to go to our clients and sort of demonstrate the familiarity with the sector and differentiate ourselves in that way. Um, I think because these are more niche and, and sort of newer, not everybody truly understands the operations that's you know necessary for these projects to succeed. So having the in-house expertise, I think differentiates us a bit. Gotcha. I would add that from like a structural perspective, you know, we run a lot of marketing processes um, and, you know, especially in the processes where we have a lot of lenders show up and we, you know, can have five lenders that are economics look pretty similar. I would say on a structural, from a structural perspective, um, you know, our clients are very focused on like prepayment flexibility and sofa floors. Um, and I have seen, you know, lenders who are willing to budge on those two points, maybe take, you know, take a business standpoint and say, I don't think this borrower, you know, everyone's solving for some minimum returns, but, you know, some lenders can take a standpoint where they just don't think that the borrower will be refinancing them in the next 12 months to 18 months, and they'll be a little bit more flexible um, on, on those structural points, and those lenders have been awarded deals. Borrowers are inherently optimistic, uh, and so they all think they're going to sell the asset in six months and interest rates are going to drop like a rock. Uh, so if you can be flexible on on call protection and and so for floors, you get a lot of attention. Yeah. Uh, we're also in a position where we sort of have the luxury of being a startup, um, not being tied to uh, producing heavy multiples. We're we're one of the lenders that is out there trying to be very flexible on on call protection because um, we really don't mind if we get the money back right now. We're still in our reinvestment period. It'd be totally fine to get repaid in in six months. So um, that's one of the places where, you know, given that a lot of the profile deals that we're seeing right now are really just borrowers who want to kick the can for 12 to 24 months, hoping that, you know, cap rates will be better or fixed, uh, fixed rate financing will be lower. Um, so that, that dangling that call protection flexibility is, is one of the ways we're, we're trying to compete. It's no, I'm taking notes, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> With more money flowing into these asset classes like we're doing some searches in ios which is and people are seem to be having a hard time getting deals done in ios now um does that make the more traditional asset classes starting to look a little more attractive like it's now like traditional multifamily. like we just got a search for our style multifamily originations person um which we haven't had one of the acquisitions person and we haven't had one of those in a while so is that making those type of assets a little more attractive like the Pendulum swinging back a little bit. I would I would like to highlight retail. I think retail is having a major comeback right now, um, and I, I, particularly the banks. The banks are not scared of retail, the right retail at this moment. What is that? What kind of retail is that? 
Um, well, grocery anchored retail has always been in favor, but yeah, just power, you know, you know, strip retail centers that have service tenants that serve like local populations. Um, you know, big box is not getting as much love, but um, you know, we're seeing a lot of appetite for retail and surprisingly from the banks too. The, the right? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah, I think what's interesting is during COVID, I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of retailers got sort of washed out and the retailers that we're left with that have demand for retail, uh, retail presence are the strongest. It's sort of survival of the fittest. So when you look at a retail deal, usually the, the metrics and the credit of the tenants is actually quite strong if they sort of endured the COVID distress. And Ali, I'll add to that, that I think that office is going through exactly what retail went through. So, you know, I do think that not, you know, there's not going to be a lot of new office that's built in the next few years. A lot of the obsolete inventory will be converted to something else. And I do think in a couple of years right now, we'll be saying the same thing about the office buildings that are still functioning as office buildings. Very optimistic. What do you think, David? David Proctor is too. He's 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 investing in it. Uh, yeah, but I think it's it's double A and everything else, which is you know there's a lot of a lot of of that pie of double A and everything else. It's it's a lot of everything else. Um, it, you know, I think it's going to continue to be rocky. Like I think you know, mid block New York City, thirty, yeah. you know, in the thirties. I mean, you got to think that's going to be a pretty tough recovery there. Um, but yeah, the Aries program. Um, with you know, RXR is, is going to be a focused around. Oh yeah, you know, you know, Class A trophy assets. You know, so you know that's where you're seeing all the leasing. I think you know some people have said you know like net leasing for you know in offices. You know, it's been positive on you know since like 2015 or 16 in in you know Class A buildings. So I think that's a, you know continue. Um, but then you know what you know in terms of traditional asset classes, I think you know multi and, and industrial have have. You know they've never been unattractive to us. That we've continued to you know try to lend on both those spaces. Given you know on the equity side, we own a significant amount of of those two asset types. Um, you know I think it's just a you know in and out whether you know where pricing is in that in, in that you know at the time of day. You know sometimes it comes uh, comes in you know a little too tight and you know, you pass on it. But um, you know those are those are two asset types that we're consistently trying to lend on. What do you yeah? Tell us about the RXR. I saw that headline. Can you just go over that briefly? The well, they're doing a J uh, our, you know, the within Aries, there'll be a JV with an RXR. They'll be looking to invest capital into uh, Class A office, um, and I think it's going to be you know, given that RXR's location, Aries location, New York, it'll be you know, very heavily New York focused, um, and you know, there'll be you know, all types of investments. I imagine from you know, Pref Mez equity, but you know one uh you know newly formed jb that you know was announced uh by aries recently i would bet on yeah i feel like uh anybody who bets against new york will not win in my opinion that's the, the class a stuff that's what we're betting on yeah uh what are you uh what else are you guys looking at is anyone looking at san francisco any any other other Mar again, what do we? That's my market right here in San Francisco. Is anyone looking at anything there? Sorry, Chris. <laughs> Not yet. Yeah, I think it's. I think things need to play out there. It's a little tough to to dive in there right now. 
Um, so it's like we have five Q and A questions. Should we wait until the end, or do you want to? Um, you can hop in there. I mean, hop in there, and then I, I haven't seen them yet. All right. Well, let me see if I am capable of pulling them up here. I just see that there's five of them. Um, okay. I'm gonna. I'll read one. We'll just sprinkle them in. In today's debt markets, with interest rates and where everything has been for the last while rapid change in cap rates, what will happen with leverage across all asset classes? It's an interesting. I mean, we've already, we've already seen leverage go down across, across the capital stack. So your mortgages, you know, your anal lenders are now, you know, 10 basis points inside of where they were even, you know, their debt funds and it's creating a lot more need for preferred equity to, you know, the gap there. Um, but I think we've already seen that. I do think, you know, interest rates sort of stabilizing and living within a certain band for some meaningful period of time and some increase in sales activity. So people have a good sense of where cap rates are and can actually like feel good about a base, their basis. Um, I think, you know, that might change the story here a little bit. Yeah. And I'd say like, just given the cost of capital and negative leverage, like borrowers don't always want to take on more leverage. I think that they're getting a lot more comfortable at lower leverage mm -hmm. points. Given our cost of capital, we are always inclined to offer more leverage to get more premium pricing. And more often we're seeing our clients say, no, thank you. We'd rather keep the leverage level at a more moderate level so that they're not subject to that negative leverage. Gotcha. Especially in the, the world today. Yeah. I'll ask one more and then we'll hop back in. How is CPACE being looked at now by senior lenders given, oh, where to go, given interest rate environment and leverage and leverage sensitivity? We, so, we we haven't done any deals with CPACE in front of us. Okay. Anybody? Has anyone done we, any? We haven't done it yet. We've we've looked at a couple of deals. Um, I think it's a really interesting solution and it's a way to actually provide liquidity, not only for new originations, but for modifications and restructuring. If you need infusion of, of some more capital into the capital stack, it's a pretty interesting tool. I think people are still getting smart on it and trying to figure it out, but I think that there are some groups out there um, that are sort of pioneers in the space, and I think they're going to become more and more prevalent. Yeah, and, and those players are spending meaningful time educating you know, lenders so that they have programmatic relationships with them. So, you know, once they, you know, get a borrower to bite with CPACE, you know, they have a whole list of, of a note lenders yeah. understand their product. I mean, for us, it's interesting because we we rely on back leverage for all of our transactions. So we need an ANO um, to leverage our returns. And it's an interesting tool to be able to do that in the absence of some of these, these regional banks that are no longer in existence. Speaking of which, of regional, of regional banks, um, I lost my, lost my train of thought here. Uh, sorry. Keep going, Lisa. I lost my my questions here. So I'm going to ask you a question that's kind of near and dear to our heart, the human capital side of things. Curious to hear what's happening in your different shops. If you're seeing, if you're seeing more efficiency and productivity, if you're seeing need for human capital go up, go down, and what you're what you're finding with the talent that you're bringing in. 
and more asset management searches going on right now? Or are you how are you, you, you or are you utilizing your originators more on the asset management side? Because they'd love yeah, that. We we had a we have we you know at Aries had a pretty robust uh asset management team. Um so you know, just as you know, things have as the market has churned a little bit, you know, I think originators have stepped up to help out, but you know, we were pretty well well staffed in that regard. So we really haven't had you know that type of need. But I imagine other shops that, you know, smaller asset management teams, you know, have had to add on. It's just the way the market was over the last year. It's hard not to, you know, ignore some of the, the changes coming with assets. Yeah. It's, 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 it's an interesting time because I think historically cycles have been sort of closer together and funny anybody who's entered the workforce in the past I don't know eight to ten years just hasn't seen a real cycle um and we have tremendously talented people on our team it's just the vintage they just haven't lived through it um I think that you know those of us who've who have lived and worked through multiple cycles um have learned a lot about what we did right or wrong and it's sort of informed us but you know we'll do the best we can to impart that on our team but I think just living through this will help create a more sort of informed generation going forward and we'll all work through it and learn together. Yeah, I mean, but we're a broker, so we don't have, you know, I'm not dealing with this, but from my conversations with lenders, it sounds like the loan originators that I speak to on a daily basis are just spending much more of their time on asset management. So I think companies are, you know, understanding that loan originations have you know, dipped and are down and, you know, originators are not as busy with new business. Um, companies are, you know, trying to make use of of people in multiple roles. And to Ali's point, I think this is, you know, it, it's in these markets where you really learn the most and you sharpen up your underwriting, you sharpen up your, you know, loan negotiation skills, and you really understand, you know, why documents are written certain ways. Right. Yeah. As search professionals, sorry, Adam, go ahead. I was gonna say from my perspective, which is a little, little bit unique just because we were in startup mode last year, not uh, having any legacy assets to, to work through, our, our whole focus was really spent on building oh, yeah. and building the infrastructure. So, you know, the flip side of, of times like these is that it is a little bit easier to hire um, as people are looking at their, their day jobs and faced with a slew of workouts and asset management, not doing what they maybe want to do, which is more on the originations or investing side, um, being able to offer that to, to the market and say, hey, you know, fresh capital, new platform, um, be on the offensive during this time instead of licking your wounds. Um, it's been a pretty attractive proposition. So um, we've, we've been fortunate to, to be able to, to hire a great team um, over the past uh, 12 months or so. I know a lot. Yeah, of we've seen other we've seen new firms being spun out because of that. They don't have any assets or legacy. I've seen a few firms like that. Uh, here is a question I was going to ask: How is the uh, CMBS market, and how does it compare with the bank loan markets in the same asset classes? I CMBS is the only avenue to get certain deals done, and I will say, wink, wink, office. Um, but I, you know, I as a percentage of the overall pools offices definitely uh you know top down i think you know and lenders are very cautious about what office deals they will originate for their cmbs pools there's like heightened demand for industrial and multifam to round out you know conduit pools um but you know 
without a functioning CMBS market, there's really no way for other lenders to, you know, uh, refinance out of the loans that are on their existing balance sheet and then provide further liquidity to the market. So good news is I think the CMBS market is picking up. Um, I know the last two quarters saw, saw increased, uh, you know, conduit pools compared to the prior year. We're hearing that, again, we could touch on office. There's a lot more trading going on in the secondary market with respect to, you know, class A institutional quality office deals. Um, and hopefully, you know, I, I think the C a functioning CMBS market is very important to the overall CRE market. Um, and, you know, spreads have come in, I think, 20 to 25 basis points. We're seeing CMBS lenders quote things. 40 basis points, you know, anticipating that things spreads will further come in um, in the next few weeks. And again, it's a good marker for all of real estate. Are you seeing a difference in assets that are being underwritten for securitization in, with in pools of money versus single asset transactions? Sorry, did we ask your question? Uh, the Versus the single asset securitization. It's interesting here, I've been hearing people talking about like certain assets, they're struggling to get them securitized on an asset by asset basis, but putting them into a pool, they've found that it's been easier to get them, get yeah. that accomplished. I'm wondering if you're seeing that in other asset types as other than hotels. Yeah, I mean, I think across the board, like smaller is better, um, whether it's any any lender right now. And I think even even investors who are looking to buy are focused on smaller deals, um, you know, that is definitely a common theme that we've seen. There's a couple different reasons for that. Part of that is, you know, the syndication market or the securitization market. Just, you know, a lot of lenders would typically close on a deal and sell off a piece of that loan to another lender similar to themselves. And, you know, people have teams that have a good sense of where they could price and sell that risk. And, you know, I think people feel a lot less confident on that these days. So, um, we see a lot more lenders just quoting deals that they feel comfortable holding the entire thing on their balance sheet. Thank you. That's interesting. Here's another question from uh, one of the attendees. What are the firm expectations regarding Fed uh, federal rate cuts, hikes, and timing? Any crystal balls? Allison's looking away. She doesn't want to answer this one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think folks are definitely, sorry, um, optimistic that there's going to be a couple rate hikes later this year. I mean, I have some of my clients who we do pre-development deals and they were hoping to take us out with construction financing and they're opting to just wait a little bit in the hopes that construction financing will become more um, affordable, I think, later on this year. And they're not kicking the can for you know another two years to so just give us another four, six, eight months um, and hoping that rates come down. I think that's sort of the, the view in the market, but I don't think anybody has a crystal ball, especially when our, you know, economists and heads of businesses all have sort of different views and, and differing opinions. I, I think really nobody knows. Yeah, certainly no crystal ball over here. I would say our our, our equity business is a lot more optimistic uh, about rate cuts in the short and medium term than, than the position that we take in credit. Uh, part of that is defensive, right? I think if you're thinking about deals that are tight on coverage or cash flows and have to bet on a SOFR curve that is favorable in order for it to cover, you know, we don't want to take that risk. So we're we're 
we're in the hire for longer camp, um, mainly because we believe we need to underwrite that way to be defensive in case in case it does stay elevated. Uh, we want to make sure our deals are structured with appropriate reserves or or uh, caps or you name it um, to deal with a potentially elevated sulfur for a longer period of time. Gotcha. You want to ask the next question, Lisa, from the audience? Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Are lenders starting to get more comfortable with office and value-add deals in the current market conditions? So we answered that a little bit, but does anyone have anything else they want to add to that? I mean, I definitely, again, I think office is you have your haves and you have your have-nots, and there's a pretty clear distinction. Um, you know, Aries is not the first platform that I've spoken to in the past week who is raising money to invest in the office sector. You know, I know there's a BP Spire that wants to do an office only pool. But again, I think everybody is just focused on, you know, best in class office buildings and, you know, really strong markets with strong demographics and employment. Um, and I and I do think, you know, it, those assets are just going to get all the attention and I don't think lenders are going to be looking at new origination deals on, you know, class B, class C, mid block or partially leased office buildings. And was it the second half of that question, was it office and value add, Lisa? And value add, yes. Yeah. So I think value add people are still really eager to lend against. So in fact, we we really like value add. We want to see dollars and you know tangible improvement to the assets that we're lending against. We don't want to bet on a market recovery and just, you know, rising tides raise all ships. We want to bet on real CapEx and, and business plans to be, you know, executed, real value add, and that, you know, we have a lot of conviction around anything with value add. Interesting. If you were if you were advising somebody on on something to build, is there is there is it is it retail? Is there like a darling class that you think would be? You know, I always feel like if you build it, they will come as the antithesis of like build it for what people want. And I'm curious what you're seeing the the investor side wanting to put debt and credit out on. I mean, in terms of building, yeah, Aries, you know, we have multi-industrial student housing, all development verticals um so those are the you know ones that we're really focused on and you know those are three asset classes i think we'd all everyone here agree upon i think everyone has kind of mentioned like those are some of the major food groups today for where you want to put dollars out um so th those three are the ones that come to mind for me. um here's a question i, I think it's pretty interesting given the amount of speakers uh in construction lending on here, can the speakers talk about the outlook of the home building business? Is it alarming that a large builder like D.H. Horton is down 10% on home orders? Anyone touch on that? You want to work in that world? I mean, I think that's... Yeah, we, I don't do any, we don't do any single family. I don't know there, but like just where mortgage rates are, I think it's become a bit cost prohibitive to, to, you know, to do traditional single family housing today. That's part of the reasons why we're spending a lot of time on manufactured housing, which I think is back to one of those niche asset classes that we didn't really talk about. But, you know, 
manufactured housing offers an attractive path to home ownership um, at a discount to either renting at multifamily rents or traditional single family housing. I think that just with the uncertainty around mortgage rates, I think single family housing is, is probably going to be struggling for a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a pretty global view and has, you know, led to pretty strong fundamentals in like the BTR and SFR space um, you know, and, and has kept, you know, rent rental rates pretty pretty high. Yeah. It it all feeds into kind of I think why everyone on this call likes multifamily and housing as a as an asset class, right? It's, it is because these uh home starts are down, cost of homes are up, interest rates are up. All of this is sort of pointing to significant rent growth in those asset classes, whether it's built to rent or traditional multifamily with the kind of cliff uh, of construction starts that is occurring, um, you know, like this year and next year, um, nothing's getting built and delivering in 25, 26. Um, easy to project a case for strong rent growth in, in those years. Um, so that's why a lot of us are, 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 are investing in those asset classes, even though they're, they're crowded today. Gotcha. Uh, do you want to ask, ask the last question, Lisa? Sure. Um, so I think what's the most unpopular contrarian opinion you have on the real estate market today and why? Anybody have any contrarian opinions they want to throw out there? I think people are going to return to work five days a week. You do? Really? I, I hope they In do. Office, huh? <laughs> well, hope they do. I think they do. It's interesting. I don't know. Four days a week. But the fifth day shouldn't be a Friday. I don't know. I mean, you think about it, like if there is going to be a recession, which we could all debate, like maybe people do start coming back to work because you have to, you know, to keep your job, like show up. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think it, it should be interesting. I mean, I think generally employers want their employees in the office. And I think there will be a shift in who has the upper hand. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely turning somewhat. Um, can you give an updated perspective on the survive till 25 saying, given the market's condition right now, is there a uh, updated perspective on that? I think it's people are, I mean, I was at the IMN with, with Adam and Lisa says that uh, her conference is pretty Positive. I mean, the, we've Lisa and I went to a number of conferences in 23, and it was like you didn't want to go into the speaker sessions. It was like a post mortem that everyone was miserable. <laughs> like they can't enjoy the good times, you know. <laughs> I don't know. What do you, what are you what are your feelings right now, Adam? You want to talk about that? I think a lot of the optimism is a function of the calendar. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to be to be pessimistic in, in January. Uh, especially on the back of potential rate cuts, you know, the timing of a lot of these conferences was right after, um, you know, the market kind of started to believe that there was going to be significant rate cuts in 2024. So, you know, look, I think that optimism may wane um, as we get into the year and, you know, transaction volume is still low and rates are still high. Um, you know, a lot of people have been sitting on the sidelines and, and wanting to do a lot more. Um, but I don't see that unlocking this year, um, maybe the back half of this year. So look, I, 
So bias at 25 usually is in regards to borrowers who are over levered and are trying to kick the can uh, to a day when they're not over levered. Um, I think it's going to take longer than that. Um, but I'm in the, the higher for longer camp in terms of interest rates. So that, that has something to do with it. Gotcha. Then I'll throw in what ratio, this is also from the from the audience, what ratio of fixed and floating rate debt are your respective teams underwriting at the moment? At Aries, our, our book um, is primarily floating rate debt. So we don't, we, we have a very, very small component of fixed. Same, we're all floating. Same. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's just since we run those processes for both for borrowers all the time, I think over the past year, the pendulum has shifted between fixed and floating um, a lot, depending on just where indices are and how attractive fixed rate deals look compared to, you know, a SOFR index. Um, but and I would say a lot of lenders have, uh, you know, life companies and the agencies and fixed rate lenders have come up with five-year product, which has, is what our clients tend to be looking for. And on top of that, five-year fixed rate product with flexible prepayment, uh, you know, uh, flexible prepayment options, um, which, you know, with a slight spread premium. So um, we are definitely speaking with a lot of borrowers who either have, you know, value-add plans or have traditionally been floating rate borrowers, and they are exploring the fixed rate market a lot more. Gotcha. How about, uh, has anyone originated any construction loans or planning to originate any construction loans in the next six months? At, at Aries, yeah, we, we, we have a number of uh, quotes out now in industrial. Um, you know, our our industrial platform at Aries is you know one of the larger ones in the United States so able to you know really harness that information from from the different market officers and you know from owned assets. Um, so you know last year we wrote a number of industrial construction loans and you know right now we're very active in that space. Right. and we I think we continue we will continue to do so you know throughout the year. Awesome. Yeah, and construction is a space we like a lot. Um, you wouldn't know it from, I guess, this call because all of us seem to, to, to play in that space, but it's still undersupplied. Um, you know, it's still been a big pullback by a lot of traditional lenders. So um, we really like the risk adjusted return that we can get in, in the construction loans. Uh, and, and then also kind of just on top of the, the supply, uh, you know, really dropping off uh, going forward, you feel pretty good about delivering two or three years into the future and what, what those market conditions look like. Just knowing that there's going to be limited competition, um, mm -hmm. so we've been actively trying to find as many of uh, the deals that pencil for the equity as we can. I think that's usually the harder problem right now is that uh, these development deals, um, especially on the multifamily side, there's just not that many of them that make sense for the equity. Um, looks good for the debt, but finding the equity has been really the the governor. Yeah, we're also active in the construction space. And then one thing just worth touching on is the conversion opportunities that we're seeing. So you know, you're seeing a lot of office to resi. We're looking at a deal that's office to self-storage. And oftentimes those conversion deals are actually more complicated um, than the ground up construction because you never know what you're going to find behind the walls. But it's another interesting way to, to deploy capital um, and earn some premium yields in the space. 
Someone asked, uh, Jesse Clark asked, what's the view of preferred equity as a form of gap capital? Sort of answered that. They want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of preferred equity out there. I think there's not a lot of, you know, everyone's kind of shifted down in the capital stack. So, you know, finding common equity right now is very difficult. All of those guys want to be in the pref position. Uh, I don't think, you know, borrowers and sponsors like where that's pricing. Um, I also think there is a proliferation of pref and it, they're, you know, people are chasing a lot of asset classes that don't necessarily need it um, and not willing to lend on asset classes or situations that really need PREF. Yeah, I think Lauren is spot on there. Like we we had one specific transaction areas where, you know, we were approached to do a office to resi conversion um, and they asked us to be in the equity. It was a pass and then basically came back a few months later and you know, we ended up writing a prep. Um, so I think there's a lot of those opportunities out there right now. You know, people are short on, on, on common equity. We just got this question then. How have capital raising efforts been? Private credit seems to be the flavor of the week. Has there been any pushback from potential investors? Interesting. I'll say from a, from a search perspective, we're seeing we saw about six months ago a tremendous amount of capital raising searches, and kind of true to form, usually six months later the acquisition searches come, and I think that's that's kind of happening now. Um, but I wonder the, the the private credit side if you're seeing anything different. Seems busy we're to us. Past that point, like people were already raised those funds. Yeah, I think it's been challenging. I mean, I, I certainly think we're all feeling the denominator effect. I think with all the uncertainty the past year, it was challenging to raise capital. Um, I think private credit is also a little bit, I don't know how to describe it, like an orphan where a lot of allocators haven't yet decided if it falls under their real estate umbrella or their credit umbrella. And so you're just trying to find a home for it. Um, but we're you know, always actively raising capital and eager to speak to LPs who are interested in investing in the space. Well, this, we'll wrap it up soon here. So oh, just two more, one more question. Uh, can the panel talk more about the preferred equity or prep equity MES opportunities, deal volume markets, 2024 expectations and how they're viewing those opportunities? I mean, you know, for I think it's hard to quantify like what you're going to do on PREF because it, it's you know something that where you know someone need has a need whether they don't have enough common equity you know, they they have a refinance and need to fill a gap um, it's not like you know just kind of looking at what you think your normal you know first mortgage origination volumes are going to be but it's definitely just in this market any you know tough you know you know down cycle that we're kind of currently experiencing. There's gonna be opportunities, yeah, you know, and it could be prep, it could be mes, but you know, to, to add on capital and and you know, kind of sit in a a, a position of you know, behind you know existing first, just because there's like we've all said, I think a couple of times there's just there's a little bit of a, a lack of equity out there right now. Yeah, and I would say we are working with clients on the floating rate side who you know, uh, you know had originated loans for assets in 2020, 2021, and 
you know, they're either facing a extension test or they're in some sort of cash sweep event and, you know, we're being asked to run processes for them. And, you know, what was a bank deal is now looking like a bank plus mes or, you know, a stretch senior deal, um, just given where interest rates have gone. So I think that is creating more mes opportunity for sure. There's definitely no shortage of these types of opportunities and this year will be littered with them. You know, we kind of view PREF, MEZ, Stretch Senior, Common, the same, all these deals that are on over lever that need gap capital of some, you know, shape or form. Um, we have been, you know, it's been challenging to find PREF deals with existing uh, first mortgages that have enough term um, to make you feel good about it. So we've tried to go into these situations and recap the entire capital stack um, we provide a solution that buys ourselves and the bar more time and also provides that gap capital. Um, we feel that's a lot more interesting, a lot more attractive. Um, we've also found that uh, new originations get better treatment from uh, the, the back leverage standpoint too. Um, the banks are certainly have pulled back their direct lending, but on the warehouse and repo side, most of them are fairly active, leaning in, trying to grow that business, given the better capital treatments. So if you can create a new structure, a new loan that maybe is higher octane, higher leverage, um, but it's a new origination with the appropriate structure, fresh term, et cetera, uh, maybe it's a little bit cash in, um, those deals you can get financed a lot more efficiently. Um, and so that works for us, works for the borrower. Um, works for our line lenders. Uh, we've been trying to approach it that way. So that's kind of place where we're focused in, in 2024. Somebody actually wrote, if you, and this is probably Callie Bader who works with us. She said, if you're, if you've met a Gen Z, I can assure you, I'm not coming to the office for five days a week. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see about that. Uh, last question. How are platform lines looking when groups come with pipelines of deals? For example, a pipeline of industrial sites, that are coming to completion that were started in the COVID era. I mean, we we love that, and a lot of our success in our platform has been, you know, we do one small seed deal with a borrower, and then sort of um, create a platform of of repeat business with them, and it just sort of becomes rinse and repeat, which is good for them and for us. So, you know, oftentimes if a group would come to us with, you know for middle market industrial deal, we'll say, well, what does your platform look like? Or what does your pipeline, I'm sorry, look like? How many more deals do you think we can do like this to make sure that it's worth sort of specking the time on it? So I think that sounds really interesting. All right. Well, David, Allison, Adam, and Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the webinar. I appreciate it. Uh, sorry if you heard some teenager screaming yo in the background. My son came home from school at an unexpected <laughs> time. Uh, <laughs> one of the trials and tribulations to work from home. Uh, but appreciate your time and enjoy Montana and LA and Miami and New York and hope to all see you soon in person. Thank you.